0: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're debating the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II as the UK marks her platinum jubilee, and we'll critically assess her 70 year reign. Last week, we explored the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun 100 years ago and investigated the so called curse and the significance of the find. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Queen Elizabeth II. Born in 1926, Elizabeth succeeded to the throne in 1952 upon the death of her father, King George VI. Over the next 70 years, she became the longest reigning British monarch, as well as the longest serving female head of state in the world. In tonight's show, we want to assess her reign, discuss the high points, as well as the Anae Horribili, and debate what she has meant for the United Kingdom, for the British monarchy and for the Commonwealth. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Carolyn Harris is an instructor in history at the University of Toronto, School of Continuing Studies and is an expert in the history of European monarchy. Her books include Magna Carta and its Gifts to Canada and Raising Royalty, 1000 Years of Royal Parenting and she's also a co-editor of the English Consort's Power Influence Dynasty series which will be published by Paul Grave Macmillan in July. Professor Philip Murphy is Director of History and Policy at the Institute of Historical Research and is an expert on the British monarchy and the post-war Commonwealth. His books include The Empire's New Clothes, The Myth of the Commonwealth, as well as Monarchy and the End of Empire, The House of Windsor, The British Government and The Post-War Commonwealth. Professor Irene Mora of Cardiff University is an expert on modern and contemporary culture as well as Victorian literature and is currently visiting professor in English literature at the University of Toronto. Her books include Britishness, Popular Music and National Identity, The Making of Modern Britain and the edited collection The New Elizabethan Age, Culture, Society and National Identity after world war ii well as i say you are all very welcome and philip i might start with you and a question about i suppose the longevity of queen elizabeth ii's reign the fact that it has been 70 years do you think that contributes to the i think considerable degree of respect and affection that there seems to be for um in the united kingdom and i think a, a huge degree of respect around the world
1: yeah i think that's absolutely right or it creates its own problems um I mean, you've got to be well into your 70s to, to remember a time when she wasn't on the throne. And uh, I think, you know, the, the monarchy has had peaks and troughs in terms of its popularity. Um, but in, in recent years, there's a real sense of what, what an extraordinary achievement it, it, it is to have been in the limelight for that length of time, not just 70 years, but, 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 but far longer when she was a, a, a public figure. And not really to have put a foot wrong. But but that creates its own problem because constitutional monarchy is a funny and sort of slightly illogical form of government. And we're not we're not used we don't really have any experience in the in the modern world of anyone else um, you know taking that job on in, in the UK. Um, and and Elizabeth II has been peculiarly temperamentally well suited to that sort of role. Very, very discreet. Uh, not someone who feels that she, she needs to make her own views plain. It, it's not clear that any other person, uh, and certainly not any other member of the royal family, would, would perform that role in, in the same way. And also from a, from a historian's point of view, because she's been on the, on the throne for such a long time, we're, we're not able to, to look at the papers in the Royal Archives in Windsor for the current reign. That's, that's 70 years. And and a lot of British government papers on her reign are are still closed, probably the majority. So we don't really have a clear historical view of, of how the palace works in comparison to other parts of the British government.
0: And Philip, do you think the fact that there is this respect for her, has that postponed debates about the future of the monarchy, whether Britain should be a republic? I know you see in the Commonwealth some countries beginning to break away. There are some debates about whether they want to continue to have the Queen as head of state. But I'm sure these debates would have been accelerated considerably if someone else was on the throne.
1: I'm not so sure. I mean, people people have been saying to... To me, well, what, what will happen when she dies? What happens when Prince Charles comes to the throne? Well, there, the, the tides are already beginning to turn um, elsewhere in the Commonwealth. Certainly, um, Barbados becoming a republic uh, last November has really given added momentum to the to the republican movement. That that and another number of other things, like the Black Lives Matter movement, Windrush scandal in in the UK. Um, so I think there's a, there is a real change going on uh, in the Caribbean, and it's happened before, before her death. Um, in, in the UK, it's a bit different. I mean, there's been a bit of a decline in support for the monarchy since the last jubilee 10 years ago. Republicanism is still a sort of minority interest. I mean, only about 22% in recent polls supported a full-blown republic. So I, I think the question is, what you know, more what the what the impact would be in the UK itself, because that is going to be a huge kind of psychological readjustment.
0: Carolyn, of course, we have to remember that when she was born, she wasn't meant to become queen. Her father uh, became king only because of the abdication crisis. So in a way, this was something that uh, was thrust upon her uh, you know, probably at the age of 10, that uh, probably was something that she hadn't been expecting.
2: Yes, there was a lot of public interest in Princess Elizabeth when she was born in 1926, as she was the eldest granddaughter of King George V and Queen Mary. But it was by no means inevitable that she would one day uh, become the monarch, as if her parents had a son. At that time, a son would supplant a daughter in the succession. That has changed with 21st century succession reforms. But certainly, if Princess Elizabeth had a younger brother, he would have ultimately succeeded to the throne. And at the time of her birth, it was expected that her uncle, who went on to be King Edward VIII, would make a suitable marriage and have heirs of his own, and that is not what happened. Princess Elizabeth had one younger sister, Princess Margaret Rose, and her uncle abdicated in 1936 uh, to marry a twice-divorced American, Wallace Simpson. So from the age of 10, there was intense public scrutiny of Princess Elizabeth as the heiress presumptive, and she began undertaking public duties at a very young age, she was educated at home by her governess, Marion Crawford, and took constitutional law and history lessons with the Provost of Eton. But she was giving her first radio broadcast at the age of 14 to children who'd been evacuated during the Second World War. She was reviewing the Grenadier Guards at 16, serving in the Auxiliary Territorial Service at 18. And she really learned the role by shadowing her father King George VI. They had a very close relationship, and that's one of the reasons why jubilee celebrations of this kind don't take place on a session day on February the 6th, as that's also the anniversary of the passing of the Queen's father. And so these celebrations take place uh, later in the year. So the Queen very much learned from her father. He was the first monarch to have the formal title of head of the Commonwealth. From 1949, Princess Elizabeth undertook a South African tour with her parents and sister in 1947. And then as queen, she would go on to be the best-traveled monarch in history. And so we see that emphasis on on quietly doing one's duty, uh, being passed on from father to daughter and having a profound impact on uh, Queen Elizabeth II's reign.
0: And Carolyn, you mentioned the Royal Jubilees. Now, forgive my ignorance, but coming from Ireland, I, I, I wouldn't really follow them or be aware of their significance. Is it like a wedding anniversary that every 25, 50, 60, 70 years they decide to... Is it a celebration of the monarchy? Is it a celebration of her reign? What What is the purpose of these jubilees?
2: Well, medieval monarchs um, did not as far as we know, celebrate uh, jubilees of this kind, even though Edward III, for instance, had a 50-year reign. And it may be because the cases of medieval 50-year reigns, like Henry III or Edward III, were monarchs who came to the throne as children, and perhaps they measured their reigns in a different way. Modern jubilee celebrations begin with the reign of King George III, and the celebration of 50 years on the throne, though unlike today, the celebrations began when we would think of as the 49th anniversary of his accession in 1809. And that occasion served as an opportunity uh, for a worldwide um, celebration, uh, loyalists who'd led the American Revolution um, to Canada, uh, there, were, uh, there were parties that took place there, and there were events that took place in various regions of the British Empire. But as well as celebrating George III, it was an opportunity for reflection, and there were some quite um, critical comments uh, from some uh, political figures at the time and some writers who noted prices had gone up, the American colonies had been lost. When we look at the history of jubilees, we often see it's celebrating a big milestone in a monarch's reign, but it's often a a time to take stock of the wider history and um, Britain's place in the world. Uh, Queen Victoria's um, Golden Jubilee in 1887, there was a very strong emphasis on her role as the grandmother of Europe and all of this European royalty converging on London as her children and Her grandchildren married into Europe's royal houses. And then the 1897 Diamond Jubilee for Queen Victoria celebrated her role in the wider empire with representatives of the British Empire and dominions converging on London. It's a very different approach now. We look at royal jubilees. We see members of the royal family traveling throughout the world in the wider Commonwealth. There isn't that same sense of the world coming to the monarch. As there was in Victoria's reign. So there's a sort of uh, dual purpose to these jubilees, marking a key milestone in a long reign such as that of George III or Queen Victoria or Elizabeth II. But it's also an opportunity to take stock of 50 or 60 or now 70 years of history and what developments have taken place during that time and how society, politics and culture have changed
0: Irene, it's interesting if we look at other long royal reigns in, in, in England and in Britain, how they have defined the era, for example, Queen Elizabeth I and the Elizabethan Age and Shakespeare and so on, uh, Queen Victorian, the Victorian Age. I wonder when we look back on the past 70 years, you know, that collection of essays uh, you are involved with, the New Elizabethan Age, is there a sense that we define the ages differently now or is it is it possible to 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 pinpoint a kind of a an Elizabethan influence on this age,
3: yeah. I mean, I, I suspect that um, it's really changed a lot since the beginning of her reign, where I think there was a very very self conscious awareness of her potential to define a new era. Um, and when that first began, if there were the, I mean, it, it's just extraordinary how. Uh, intense the attempt to compare her reign to that of Elizabeth I actually was, to identify a new Elizabethan age, to mirror that of the first Elizabeth, and it was very much a post-Armada Elizabethan age, so they'd already gone through the first great conflict with the Second World War, with Winston Churchill essentially as a kind of Henry V, and now post-Armada we have Elizabeth I now being Elizabeth II reigning over what is going to be this cultural fluorescence of a new age. And comparing that to the imperial expansionism of the first Elizabethan age, and now it's benign, it's the benign Commonwealth, they've rewritten the empire into the Commonwealth, and you have explorers and instead of going off and colonizing everybody, they're now going to do wonderful things in aviation and scale Mount Everest and so on and so forth. And that kind of attempt to impose a myth on the modern age in order to actually make sense of a profound moment of national uncertainty when Elizabeth II is coming to the throne was incredibly resilient for quite some time. And obviously, of course, England as defining itself as Britain has gone through many, many, many changes (laughs) since then um, and I think in many ways would recognize a kind of pessimism to that idealism that was articulated quite performatively at the beginning of the reign. And what I think is quite interesting now, um, I think one of the reasons the jubilees are so important, and one of the reasons for reign is considered to be so important, is it allows for these moments of national spectacle to try to enforce an idea of what the reign actually means in terms of a national identity and a national history. And what I really think it, it kind of mythologizes now isn't the first Elizabethan age and what that might have offered as a potential for the new modern age, but rather the post-war moment. Um, So the post-war moment now has become this kind of touchstone for an ideal of modern British identity. Um, You know, so that keep calm and carry on, you know, was this kind of a statement of stoic desperation at the time. But that gets revived later on in Elizabeth II's reign, not by her, obviously, as a kind of nostalgic invocation of this great moment of the 1950s. Whereas in the 1950s, they were looking for this great moment under Elizabeth I, allegedly, uh, where there was this cultural fluorescence and relative peace and expansionism and great exploit. So I think that's kind of... Um, the significance now of this attempt to use the monarchy to identify um, a sense of national identity.
0: Irene, it's interesting you even mentioned Everest because news came through about uh, Edmund Hillary uh, climbing, (laughs) ascending Everest uh, the day of the coronation and the uh, the Daily Express headline Mm -hmm. the next day was Be Proud of Britain on this Day. And I wonder... This was an era of 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 great change. You you see it even in the way the coronation a year after uh, she took over in in 1953 being televised. It was, you know, watched, you know, by huge numbers. The the Christmas messages started being televised in 1955 that there is a huge amount of of change going on in in, in the world that the monarchy is also uh, reflecting at this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean the very fact that sort of the, the emergence of the BBC as a televisual presence um, coincides with the coronation. Um, nothing had, had, uh, could match that, that phenomenon of the television uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and in many ways, the handy thing about her being a constitutional monarch, rather than being Elizabeth, is that she could in many ways be a kind of passive recipient of the constructions that were being put upon her by modern technology and modern political rhetorical attempts to construct an ideal of the modern nation so that she can be this passive constitutional monarch witnessing these apparently wonderful new phenomena in aviation. Aviation is incredibly important, you know, the, the how that Develops after the Second World War into commercial aviation and exploits of aviation feats and engineering, um, music as well, that she can sort of look over it, preside over it, and that you do, as you say, you do have these televised moments of her with her family participating and appreciating what the nation is achieving. So she's not actually um, creating any of that, but she's allegedly inspiring it, and she can be seen in her own youthfulness and arguably in her own femininity um, to kind of be peacefully inspiring this new moment.
0: Philip, it's interesting, you know, Irene has described the the job as being a constitutional monarch, but I wonder what exactly does that mean? Because is the role meant to be, is it symbolic? Is it ceremonial? There are these audiences with the prime ministers. Her first one was Winston Churchill, her most recent one, Boris Johnson. Uh, But how important are those meetings and how important or how how real is that role of being head of state?
1: It's it's uh, it's a very real role. And uh, as I say, I don't think we, we, we understand enough about how it's functioned in in the, the current reign. Prince Philip once, once described her as, as sort of the, the Commonwealth psychotherapist. And she's pretty much played that role potentially for her, her prime ministers. They know that they have a regular meeting with her. They can be absolutely frank. She listens. Sometimes asks pointed questions so far as one knows, but she's a, she's a kind of sounding board, and you know the the palace still has uh, certain certain rights in English law, the right to be consulted about laws that affect the interests of the royal family. that is something that has emerged in in recent years and is, is quite is quite controversial. The monarch also has this peculiar global role as uh, monarch of, of now 15 Commonwealth realms. Again, in, in those cases, that the functions of the crown are carried out by a, a locally nominated governor general. But the palace still has this, this uh, sort of private diplomatic network of correspondence between the Queen's private secretary and those governors generals in which they kind of share very candid views about the local political scene. And the palace gives sort of guarded advice. And again, we got a little glimpse of that when the so-called palace letters between the the palace and the governor general of Australia in the 1970s were were released uh, due to quite a prolonged legal action uh, on the part of some Australian uh, constitutional specialists. Uh, the, the Australian government and the palace were very reluctant to see those, those letters uh, revealed. But, but again, the, the fact that that correspondence was kept secret raised all sorts of questions about the palace's role.
0: And also it can be the Queen can be a hugely effective diplomat on the world stage then if there is a royal visit, and I'm thinking back to the visit to, to Ireland in, in May 2011, where that was hugely significant in terms of reconciliation and healing and uh, when the Queen spoke words in Irish and laid a wreath in the Garden of Remembrance and so on, that it can be very effective you know, the best ambassador, the best statesman that Britain can ever send is, is the Queen on a visit.
1: Yeah, and she has also that broader Commonwealth role as head of the Commonwealth. Uh, and she's she sort of turned that, it, when it was first thought up in 1949 under George VI, her father, the head of the Commonwealth was really just a form of words to allow India to remain in the Commonwealth as a, as a republic. And she's kind of turned it into a proper job, a proper ceremonial job through visiting almost every Commonwealth country in, in the world uh, through supporting the Commonwealth Day Service in Westminster Abbey, through her Commonwealth Day and Christmas Day uh, speeches to, to the Commonwealth, through her support for the Commonwealth Games, and, and through making a point of attending Commonwealth Heads of Government meetings. She's, she's, you know, she no longer travels, so Charles will be representing her when the Commonwealth meets in, in Rwanda later this month. Um, but she saw it as a key part of her duty to, to be there. And, you know, there the were in the past quite, quite edgy meetings, one in Lusaka in, in, in 1979, uh, ahead of Zimbabwe's independence, when it seems that she played quite an important role in, in keeping everyone on amicable terms, keeping the conversation going. Um, so so yes, yeah, she, has, she has quite an important diplomatic role globally.
0: And just on the Commonwealth, Philip, do you think the Commonwealth has a future? Because I've read stuff that you've written and where you've said that perhaps it's run its course and that perhaps it needs to reinvent itself if it is to have a future.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that it, it always seems to have the people always talk about the need for the Commonwealth to, to reinvent itself. And, and it becomes a kind of blank canvas on which people project all of their, their desires and, and good wishes for, you know, solving the world's problems. But actually, it it survives partly because it's a, it's a sort of kite mark of international respectability to belong to it. The Commonwealth, since the 1990s, has claimed that it's a values-based organization, based on support for democracy, human rights, the rule of law. So... So belonging to the Commonwealth is, is sort of a way of saying to the rest of the world, we're a respectable international player and you can invest in us and you can, you can partner with us. So, so the incentives to belong to it and to keep it going are really about identity rather than its capacity to do anything. And it doesn't really have much capacity to do anything anymore. I mean, its, it's budget has shrunk over the last decade. It's now only about 30, 30 million annually. And, you know, it finds it almost impossible to focus on one or two things that it could conceivably do well, partly because everyone is so keen to, again, project their own good cause onto it. So I, I don't think it's going to dissolve anytime soon, because that would take too much of a, an act of will on anyone's part. I think member states sort of have an interest in it, it keeping going, but not really as a very active international organisation.
0: Okay well tonight we are debating The life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II On this The Platinum Jubilee We're going to take a quick break now When we come back we'll be looking at Elizabeth's family As well as some of the triumphs And some of the disasters Over the past 70 years So stay with us here on News Talk Talking history History on News Talk well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth II. I'm joined by a brilliant panel of experts, Dr. Carolyn Harris, Professor Philip Murphy and Professor Irene Mora. Carolyn, can we talk about the, the wider family? Because, you know, usually perhaps if we're, if we're looking at an historical figure on the show, we wouldn't spend much time on the private life, but... Here, very much the private life becomes the public life. Her her eldest son, Charles, is the heir to the throne. Uh, The family are always very much in the spotlight, and it very much impinges on how the royal family and the monarchy is perceived.
2: Yes, and over the Queen's 70-year reign, uh, the Queen's life has intersected with wider uh, debates and discussions concerning women and the family. We see in the 1950s, often the press contrasted Queen Elizabeth II's image married to Prince Philip with two young children, Prince Charles and Princess Anne. Uh, There'd be a contrast with Princess Margaret, who was seen as still trying to find the right person to settle down to get married So because both the Queen and Princess Margaret were female public figures, there was a lot of uh, press scrutiny of them as women and uh, and as uh, wives and mothers. And it's very striking that when we look at the Queen's reign, she comes to the throne at the age of just 25. And we know from uh, the recent home movies uh, that have been shown to the public through the documentary *The Unseen Queen*. That at home, that the future Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip spent time with their young children, but their responsibilities often took them away from home for extended periods of time. Commonwealth tours in the 1950s were extremely long. There was a 45-day uh, tour of Canada in 1959 when um, the Queen discovered she was expecting Prince Andrew. uh, There was a very long tour in the mid-1950s as well uh, around the world to the Caribbean and Australia and New Zealand. And this meant that the royal children uh, spent a lot of time with their grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, with nannies and governesses. There was this whole support system. And the Queen had a very inclusive attitude, towards her family in the public eye. The Queen invited her cousins to undertake public engagements from very early in her reign, as with this whole process of decolonization and independence ceremonies, there were simply too many events happening around the world for the Queen, Princess Margaret, Prince Philip, and the Queen Mother, uh, for one of them to be present at all these events. So we see the Dukes of Kent and Gloucester and Princess Alexandra, assuming these public roles uh, from very early in the Queen's reign, and it's a big contrast from today where there's a focus on streamlining the monarchy and having fewer working members of the royal family, uh, whereas in contrast early in the Queen's reign, there was this very strong focus on, on a big royal extended family who were undertaking royal duties now, over the course of the Queen's reign, we've seen changes to Commonwealth tours to make them more inclusive of royal children. So, there have been many changes over time in terms of the amount of time that royal couples uh, spend with their children as these Commonwealth tours have become shorter and more targeted.
0: And then, Carolyn, so many of the challenges to the to the reign have also related to to family matters. We think of the different divorces. We think of all the tensions in the in the marriage between Diana and Charles, culminating in in divorce and then ending tragically in the death of Diana in nineteen ninety seven. And I think that was a a very difficult period for the Queen. She mentioned it herself in nineteen ninety two as the Anna Horribilis. Uh, we think of you know even more recently the disgrace of andrew uh you know the problems with harry and meghan that there seems to be so so many of the difficulties and and challenges seem to come uh from some of these uh, family issues as well
2: yes the queen and prince philip had a long and enduring 73 year marriage where they were very supportive of uh, one another and some of the other marriages in the queen's family have not been as successful. And the breakdown of the marriage of Charles and Diana played out in the public eye, and both Charles and Diana spoke to the press about the breakdown of their marriage, Charles with his biographer, Jonathan Dimbleby, and Diana to Andrew Morton, and also in a very controversial interview uh, with the BBC, so the public very much felt as though they were seeing every detail of how this marriage uh, broke down and were almost encouraged to take sides and at the time you know, many were on diana's side now there tend to be some more balanced portrayals that there that there were issues on both sides um of the marriage but diana remains this key figure in popular culture, there continue to be uh, plays and um, novels and TV series that depict um, Charles and Diana's marriage. So there still remains a lot of popular fascination uh, with that particular marriage and its breakdown. And Diana's Uh, star power. When Diana died in a car accident in 1997, this was one of those moments where the Queen was um, putting her family first, remaining at Balmoral, uh, deciding it was better for William and Harry to be in comparative privacy with their extended family. But there was this demand from the public that the royal family be present in London and to be part of that outpouring of mourning that followed uh, Diana's death. And certainly we know from what Prince William, and especially Prince Harry, uh, have said, that it was uh, difficult for them to be in the public eye um, at at that time. Uh, The Queen's grandchildren have all spoken about her with an enormous amount of admiration. Um, Prince William commented at the time of the Diamond Jubilee that he thought his grandmother was incredible, stepping into the role she did at the age of just 25 at a time when there were very different attitudes towards women. And now we see the Queen uh, having a, a role in the, the lives of many of her great-grandchildren. And uh, and so we see uh, George and Charlotte and Louis as part of the parade at a, at Trooping the Color on the first day of the Platinum Jubilee So there have been these periods of crisis in the Queen's extended family. And we also have these moments where we see the Queen emphasizing continuity within her family. The number of images of the Queen with Prince Charles, Prince William, and Prince George. As like the last years of the reign of Queen Victoria, there are three generations of heirs And there's been a very strong focus on emphasizing continuity over the next few generations as a counterpoint uh, to some of the intense uh, press scrutiny of more junior members of the royal family.
0: Irene, we've seen, some of us have lived through uh, these dramatic events, but some of us have also then seen them dramatised. So, for example, in the television series on Netflix, The Crown, uh, or, for example, the the film The Queen, which dealt with the the death and the aftermath of the death of Diana, that we read about these events, we see them on TV, but then we also see them refracted through these fictionalised dramatisations.
3: I think you could argue that perhaps one of the reasons that the monarchy is probably destined to be with us for a long time um, is because it makes such good television drama um, and it makes such good theatrical drama and film. I mean, when it, perhaps one of the consequences of her coronation coinciding with this kind of emergence of television, both live television, television documentary, but television drama as well, is that she became a part of it and her family became a part of it, It became a very uh, prominent part of it in the 1960s when she allowed television cameras into, you know, allegedly into the family home um, to see what a real royal family looked like and so on. So, And, and, you know, that's coinciding with the rise of soap opera, television, um, but at the same time, coinciding with this real interest in, as I I often say, imposing a kind of template for artistic performance on the nation, which continues to see the monarchy, no matter how constitutional it might be, how, how passive it might be in many respects, particularly political respects, in kind of Shakespearean terms. So that there's this kind of pride in the national theater, pride in national culture that is being constantly reenacted through a family drama that can be seen as soap opera, it can be seen as a kind of British Dallas in many ways, but it can also be seen as Shakespearean theater and thus kind of validate national history through its own culture. Um, And at the same time, modernize it by aligning it with film, by aligning it with modern drama. I mean, there was the film, The Queen, but there was also a play um, that tried to rewrite British history through Elizabeth's um, meetings with her prime ministers throughout history. And that's a way somehow of reading national history is how the monarch is engaging with the prime ministers. So this kind of fascination with rulers as somehow embodying national history, no matter how, as I said, no matter how passive, no, no matter how constitutional, it all kind of comes together in these different dramatic imaginings that align with what is actually being performed in front of television cameras.
0: And it's interesting you mentioned that play and you wonder how much of it is true, for example, that, that Wilson was her favourite prime minister and the, the prime minister she liked, the ones she didn't like. But I think you're right, there is such interest in these elements of, of the reign.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that's one of the reasons these jubilees can still be so, in many ways, not just performative, but actually bring people together because it brings people together in an interest in their own apparent history, their own national history, um, with all of its salacious details. You know, history before wasn't always televised. It wasn't always, like, constantly present in newspapers. It wasn't always personalized in the same way. But because this reign has gone on for so long in front of the television cameras, and no matter how you know political and diplomatic the queen herself has become in a way what it does is it allows for this imagining of what's going on behind the scenes to create this this long long drama this family saga of which she is now the matriarch you know she was the young princess coming into being and now she is the matriarch presiding over this family drama that's the family drama of the royal family but also the family drama of the nation however that's defining itself whether that be of england of britain or of the commonwealth
1: If you don't allow a a kind of history to be written, then dramatists will do it for you. And the monarchy is always having to kind of reinvent itself and assess, make a kind of a balance between allowing some information into the public domain, But, but if you like, trying to protect its mystique. I mean, Irene talked about this documentary, The Royal Family, which was made in 1969. The palace pretty much effectively suppressed it and so what you know, what you get are the, are the dramatizations in, in, in the in the play. A proper history of the palace over the last seventy years has yet to be
0: written. Well, tonight we are trying to explore some of that history with our panel of experts. We'll take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll look at the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. Talking history, history on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History as we mark the platinum jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II discussing her life and legacy with a panel of experts, Dr. Carolyn Harris, Professor Philip Murphy and Professor Irene Mora. So Carolyn, after 70 years of of her reign, is it possible at this stage to assess even tentatively her her legacy?
2: I think there are certain aspects of her legacy uh, that have become clear. Certainly she has made the monarchy more accessible than any previous monarch, granting permission for her coronation uh, to be televised to a worldwide audience in 1953. That was one of the first transatlantic television broadcasts as the the footage was flown uh, to Canada so that Canadians could see the coronation uh, very uh, soon after the uh, British did. And so there was this global television audience of 277 million people uh, tuning in to the coronation, and many people bought their first television set for that occasion. In the 1950s, socializing at the palace uh, was more restrictive. Presentations of debutantes from upper-class families continued to 1958, but then the Garden Party, a form of uh, royal events that had emerged in Queen Victoria's reign, very much took center stage, and these were opportunities uh, to uh, honor people and their achievements uh, from all walks of life. So a much broader cross-section of the wider British public and Commonwealth public uh, were received by the monarch and had their achievements personally recognized. And in the 21st century, the amount of entertaining at the palace continued to increase. Often state dinners were accompanied by additional uh, receptions for uh, uh, people from those various countries who were uh, living in Britain to also attend events leading up to a state dinner. And then we see more and more use of new technologies. Uh, The Queen and Prince Philip uh, cooperated with the 1969 uh, Royal Family documentary. And for many people, it was the first time They heard members of the royal family speaking to one another in a uh, more unscripted, spontaneous way. And although that documentary is not uh, widely accessible today, it certainly had a strong impact um, in its time. And we've seen the Queen make the royal collection more accessible as well, Uh, pieces of art from the Royal Collection being displayed in museum exhibitions around the world. And then in the 21st century, we've seen the Queen embracing the internet age, and particularly in addition to the British monarchy's website and social media feeds, we've seen the Queen embrace video conferencing during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's enabled uh, the Queen to remain very visible uh, during a period of social distancing. So the Queen has been a cautious reformer throughout her reign and has made use of new technologies to connect as widely as possible with the public. And that has intersected with her role as head of the Commonwealth. These um, these events and these new technologies and royal tours enable her uh, to be much more visible and present in the wider commonwealth as well as the united kingdom
0: philip i think it has been an advantage that she did become queen at the age of 25 that uh, this 70 year reign and uh, there's been advantages that have come with that as she's been able to change the role and develop the role and 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 has built up all of that respect because of all those decades in the role but it's not going to be the same with her her successors uh her eldest son, Charles, is is already 73. Uh, William, the next in line, the grandson, is going to be 40 this month. So you're not going to have someone with this, that same length in the role. And it probably is a problem for the monarchy that it's, it's going to be older people succeeding then just because of the, the way the line goes.
1: I think that's possible, but you might be seeing something else. I mean, a lot of people have talked about the problems the monarchy will have when Charles takes over. And, you know, that that has arisen from his tendency to be a slightly interfering presence, to preach, to use his position to preach about his own particular causes. But, you know, on the other hand, you look at the recent royal tours, and Charles's tour to, to Canada, partly because it was pretty low-key, seems to have gone better than the, the tours by the, the younger royals, the Cambridges and the, the Wessexes. And partly because he and Camilla are this sort of fairly reassuring presence now. And, and there isn't that sort of sense of the kind of shock and awe uh, glamour of the, the younger royals, which is supposed to overwhelm everyone, but actually didn't overwhelm everyone. When Kate and William uh, made their trip to the Caribbean, there was a sense that he was being the royal family being slightly presumptuous about what the reaction to them would be, and they had a bit of a tin ear about the kind of concerns about colonial legacy issues and reparations for for slavery and colonialism. So I, actually, you might see a, a fairly successful model of a kind of a, a, a low key. Uh, monarchy under under Prince Charles, which could possibly fit the mood better. I mean, we're moving into a period of, of austerity. I think people are less receptive to some of the glitz and glamour. And Charles's, you know, actually quite caring style um, might go down fairly well.
0: And a final question, Philip, then. We've mentioned how. Elizabeth has been in the public eye really since her birth when she became a princess and then uh, her father becoming king uh, when she was 10 but we don't really know the the private Elizabeth. I think she's always been something of an enigma that we know her very much from the public appearances and the public broadcasts, the Christmas messages and so on. But the actual real Elizabeth, apart from the dramatisations, we really know very little about what she's like behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, well, a- apparently, Patrick, she keeps a diary. And um, if, I, if I live long enough... I, you know, I, I'd like to volunteer to be, to edit those diaries, but I think it would also be a fascinating thing. One doesn't know whether she's a very good diarist. I mean, there was a big legal campaign which Andrew Lowney ran recently to have the Mountbatten diaries released. And actually, he's a lousy diarist. I mean, it, 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 it's sort of and, and that's often the, the nature of diaries of people in very prominent position. I mean, it it will be fascinating when those diaries are, are released, but probably don't hold your breath.
0: Okay, well, we'll have to come back and do another show as soon as the diaries of Queen Elizabeth II are released. Well, my thanks to my excellent panel of experts for talking about the life, the legacy, the 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth II, Dr Carolyn Harris of the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies, author of Raising Royalty, Professor Philip Murphy, Director of History and Policy at the Institute of Historical Research and the author of Monarchy and the End of Empire, and Professor Irene Mora of Cardiff University is currently visiting Professor... In English Literature at the University of Toronto and editor of The New Elizabethan Age. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on Sound. We have some great shows coming up in the weeks ahead, including one on the Irish Civil War and lots more besides. So join us next week and on the weeks ahead on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night.